I would like to acknowledge the Wajuk Noongar people and that we meet on Wajuk Noongar Buddha. And I pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging. And thanks Ross for giving me the opportunity to speak tonight. I possibly wouldn't have chosen to do this without a little push. <laughs> um, also, please sit comfortably. So my topic tonight is unlearning. Last year in spring, I waited for a train at Sydney's Town Hall station. On the platform, I was facing four big advertisements for a local university. I read, unlearn truth, unlearn love, unlearn criminal. Clever, I think. This got my attention. I hear a traveler next to me drawn to the same advertisement, if so for different reason, reasons, getting his iPhone out, ready to film his commentary on these advertisements. I hear a mumble. Unlearning truth. I thought, you, I thought you go to university to learn the truth. Unlearn love, criti critically staring at the photo of two white men kissing. That's the only time a white fellow gets good press these days, turning to unlearning criminal. Ah, yeah, I guess this should mean you're not really a criminal, but it's all about inequality and whatnot. And then continues mumbling, that's postmodernism for you, and rambles. And what is this, a university or a Marxist recruitment center? <laughs> you can check actually this commentary out on YouTube. <laughs> Slightly amused but also annoyed, I turn my head and get on the train that by now has arrived on the platform. Learning to unlearn can pretty much be applied to any area of our lives, beliefs and habits. Students at the aforementioned university who came up with this clever advertisement put a long list of unlearnings together. Unlearning success, unlearning gender, unlearning sexuality, unlearning hurt, unlearning race, unlearning culture, unlearning social status, unlearning white privilege, unlearning heterosexual entitlement, Unlearning boundaries, unlearning borders, unlearning beauty, unlearning taboos, unlearning medicine, unlearning the accepted. This list could be endlessly continued. Unlearning does not, does not mean forgetting. Its meaning can be translated into uncovering our blind spots, our biases, our filters, we have accumulated over years throughout our life, influenced by the language or, shall I say, languages and cultures we grew up in. Did you know that you're actually equipped as an infant to form all sounds of a language of the world, from African clicks to Bavarian rolled R's, like R? You only lose them once your language environment feeds back to you. No, not needed. Experiences we make and the skills we get trained in or train ourselves in, interests we are developing, books we read, environments we are exposed to, traumas we live through, survival mechanisms we establish from childhood onwards, onwards, this all contributes to our neural pathways that are set up early and grow thicker and thicker while we repeat our habits, views, cultural perspectives, 
and accumulate more and more life experience. It does not mean that we cannot change these habits or viewpoints, but it does get harder the older we get. Our minds and bodies get shaped and programmed to think, gesture and move in a certain way. And once programmed, we can get easily triggered by familiar old stuff, even if we are adults. We are drawn to what is familiar to the extent that we, even if it's not so good for us, we are drawn still to that familiar. That also means that our filters do not necessarily allow us to see what is in front of us. But who decides what is in front of us? How do I know that your green is my green? I cannot really assume this, but still in procedures like being a witness in court, our legal system really relies or assumes that we are objective perceivers. So much research has shown that witness reports are often quite diverse across witnesses. This is quite scary. So how can we unlearn? It seems such an important and empowering skill to have. It takes effort to question to unlearn. So a word that could also be interpre interpreted as let go or relax. Why does it spark so much resistance? Perhaps with the explanation given above, we can understand why. A simple example, I was a self-taught swimmer up until I was 28. My freestyle technique involved only breathing to one side after two strokes. Then I took stroke corrections. That was a really awkward experience. My body rebelled against this initially new set of movements, but the swimming teacher tried to bring me to breathe to both sides while doing three strokes. The first week, swimming felt completely wrong. The second week, there was less resistance. And the third week, I got the hang of it. Today, I can't even imagine how I could only breathe to one side. Having a teacher helps. So, it helps to have Ross as a teacher, putting it into a Zen context. I would like to present five angles that I choose for this topic of unlearning. All of them sprinkled with insights from my Zen practice. In fact, angle four and angle five are Zen perspectives themselves. I am a lay person, so at no point do I claim that my ramblings make sense. <laughs> but the main message of this talk is that Practicing the Zen might offer endless opportunities for unlearning and for recognizing our blind spots. The first angle I'd like to explore for unlearning is learning a new language. This is somehow an interesting conundrum because it takes learning something new to unlearn. So languages include Includes or include perspectives of ethnicity, gender, religion, social attitudes. Every language shines a slightly different spotlight onto our lives, highlights concepts or even misses concepts. Putting all languages of the world together can perhaps facilitate to understand what we humans try to capture and how we humans think 
We can learn about different perspectives. You and I are just one perspective, as we know from Zen. I entertained for a moment to write the whole talk without using the pronouns you and I, <laughs> but it was too hard. So I tried something else. So I recently took up learning Nunga language down at the meeting place in South Fremantle. Learning about the names of all the birds of the area made me realize that most bird names are almost onomatopoeia. So these are words that sound a little bit like the birds call themselves. So I realized by just learning the names of the birds, I felt much more drawn into my surrounding. And obviously I need to learn the vocabulary more and more to, to have them really settled in my, in my brain. But it really sparked interest to get more into it because it, this local language expresses connection to place and land. So what I learned so far or unlearned so far, that Nunga language gives a great attentiveness to sounds. I have worked as a psycholinguist and neuropsychologist tackling language for over a decade. I had the privilege to work for over 10 years with people from all over the world, teams with a high language diversity. To achieve the goal to figure out how language works in different contexts, it was necessary to have a multilingual team. I remember the aliveness and the interconnectedness I oftentimes felt sitting together in a meeting, grappling over a very specific nerd question, <laughs> bringing all our different language perspectives to the table. And guess what happens? I felt cultural difference and language differences dropped away and our languages mapped into one big artwork, one big canvas of perspectives. I can still recall the aliveness and the joy that I felt. This interconnectedness by working towards one goal despite, or shall I say, because of the differences, can also be observed in this room. Go around, and, go around in your mind in this room, who sits on this, these cushions? We come from near and far away places and we learn from each other. But first and foremost, we are trying to learn something together which is the way. Language drops, culture drops. Not more to say. <laughs> the second angle I'd like to explore for learning is learning about different cultures. This is very related to the first angle, but brings different aspects. Sometimes cultural habits, cultural habits couldn't be more opposite. Take, for example, eye contact. In Japanese culture, it is perceived as quite intruding when holding too long eye contact. Whereas in German culture, eye contact is perceived as very polite when having a conversation. So imagine a German and a Japanese trying to adapt to each other's conversation styles. It will intuitively feel awkward for both sides by trying to adapt to each other's habits. You feel impolite either way. Emotionally impolite since you're not behaving in a way that is familiar. Emotionally polite but impolite since you're aware that the other culture needs an opposite behavior. However, just having this awareness will create a space for unlearning and will move us beyond cultural habits just with the simple gesture of attempting the other custom. 
We are moving out of our comfort zone and trying something new. We are bringing curiosity for the other and the willingness to overcome cultural blindness. This creates respect and connection, and the other is not so other anymore. One individual who is a master of uncovering blind spots is Sean Tan, an Australian graphic novelist, influenced by his father, a Chinese immigrant to Australia, and an architect by trade. While I knew of Sean Tan's work before, before I moved to Fremantle two years ago, only while I preparing for this talk, I learned that he was actually born here in Fremantle. I still cannot hide my excitement about this. <laughs> but Sean Tan's book um, all about deconstructing perspectives. His stories have one major goal, to look at the world from a fresh angle, giving careful and loving attention to detail and observing the world around us by attending to the often overlooked. His art is driven by an appreciation for the beauty of life. A perspective new, new immigrants, new migrants, children and artists naturally bring. If we are none of the above, we might find it a bit more effortful to perceive a new angle to the world around us. However, Zen practice is one way to help us with this endeavor. How can we reconnect with this inner, innate curiosity to perceive the world around us with new eyes? Shontan's most famous book, The Arrival, sets out a beautiful example, a, word, a wordless story only consistent of illustrations. The story is about a man who leaves his family to find a better life for them in a bizarre, faraway country. The entire story is a, is a metaphor for a journey of immigration, but can also easily be transferred to a story of any major life event that forces you to look at what is in front of you with different eyes. In Zen, we would call this transformation having beginner's eyes, at least maintaining a fresh perspective, perspective, perspective as if you would see things for the first time and maintain this fresh perspective through your practice. The arrival captures in a most intriguing way how an immigrant might see a new place without having any local language. A bit frightened, very curious, open to magical events unfolding. I will pass all these around maybe after the talk. <clears throat> One of the less known pieces of Sean Tan's Tan is the story of Eric. Eric is a stick figure. Well, that's the head of Eric, who comes to Australia as an exchange student and discovers and tries to make sense of the world around him. Suddenly, he leaves his host family without saying goodbye. Suddenly, it seems, at least for the host family. The family is left anxiously thinking, Eric did not like it here. And the only possible explanation for this strange behavior seems to be that it must be a cultural thing. Someday though, maybe a couple of days later, after Eric's disappearance, the family opens the pantry and there they find a thank you gift from Eric. And the drawing Shantan offers for this gift 
is so moving, I don't even attempt to put it into clumsy words. It is beyond words. So see for yourself. Um, I think you can't see it in the back of the hand, but I will pass it around later. <laughs> Every time I flick through this book, I feel very touched by the subtle, beautiful gift Eric leaves for the family. In the end, it is not about cultural difference, but about essential humanity, moving beyond culture and language, moving into a universal language of kindness, sensitivity, connectedness, and the small, wondrous things which make life so worthwhile. The third angle is unlearning by learning about history. In order to understand cause and effect, a very common concept in Zen. Can I understand my own history to understand why I'm behaving so strangely in certain contexts? Can I understand my country's history, in my case, German history, in order to understand the intergenerational trauma my nation has caused I also understand the importance of learning about the unspeakable events in greatest details in schools to ensure that this chapter will never repeat in German history. With the effect that Germans, according to latest surveys, are feeling really uncomfortable when they are asked about national pride or nationality. My personal take on national pride, well, I have to admit I cannot really relate to it. How can I be proud of a geographical randomness I have been born into? However, <laughs> I deviate. Max Frisch, a Swiss author, he lived from 1911 to 1991, said, at some point we decide, probably subconsciously, what story we call our life and how we tell our story, what cause and what effect, I mean, how, how are we putting our story together? So, but if you think of it, you could tell your story and your life in so many different ways, giving room to different events each time you tell your story. So how do you tell your story? Acknowledging history, acknowledging the history with all its darkness, it will affect the understanding of the present moment. This does not contradict Buddhist practice. The precepts help us to remind ourselves of ethical actions as it determines future effects. So what has this to do with unlearning, you might ask? Well, the acknowledgement of damage done, the preparedness to apologize, to say sorry is a way of unlearning. I felt ashamed and angry with myself that I did not have a good response to the Noongar young woman at the Noongar language course who asks our teacher, why isn't more Aboriginal history taught at school? And the teacher said, well, it's a difficult topic to teach. Woof. Anger rushes into my veins. How can the teacher say such a thing? This can't be the reason. The question, the antennas of this woman, they are so well in tune, this young student. So don't stifle them with such a shady explanation, I think to myself. But then the realization, I am part of the effect. So how do we talk about this together and how can we unlearn history together, living in this space? This is a hard topic. So that's why I'm moving to the fourth angle now, unlearning in Zen practice, <laughs> because perhaps here we can find answers. Not perhaps we can, 
What does it have to offer when we, for example, as described above, experience anger? I felt anger when I heard this answer from the teacher. Well, it's a difficult topic to teach. But from what I have read in Aitken Roshi's writings, recognizing it as anger as a valuable energy to flag injustice is very, very valuable. My teacher, Jillian Kut Roshi in Sydney, often shares in her talks anecdotes of Robert Aitken Roshi, who has been a regular protester in Honolulu downtown, apparently. I mean, I had not the privilege to meet him in person, but others in this room have. So throughout his life, he remained a political activist, attending rallies and demos, holding up his everlasting sign, the system stinks. So in the mind of Clover, Aitken Roshi summarizes the precept, I take up the way of not indulging in anger as follows. This precept is not a mere moral injunction. Anger and love are names for certain tendencies of energies. If you cannot feel anger at all, then you are blocking your own creativity. It is the indulgence part we are cautioned in. Don't lose yourself in this emotion. Sit with it, observe it, let it fall away. Mind you, this can be so very hard. How can you unlearn anger when you are in it? For my Jukka ceremony at Kudoji, Jillian Kut Roshi asked um, last year in September 2017, she, um, I responded to her to this precept, I take up the way of not indulging in anger in the following may, way. Mind you, I could add to, I could add here, I take up the way of not indulging in insecurity, <laughs> I take up the way of not indulging in mistrust, and so on. So that's my personal list. But what I had to say about I take up the way of not indulging in anger was um, I responded as followed. Recognizing my state, I pause, feeling the heat rushing through this body. This body signals unmet needs. Old and new energy come together. One moment here, next moment gone. I take up the way to use this energy wisely. Edkin Roshi cites Thich Nhat Hanh in the Clover Book, who says, Thich Nhat Hanh says, treat your anger with the utmost respect and tenderness, for it is no other than yourself. Do not suppress it. Simply be aware of it. Awareness is like the sun. When it shines on things, they are transformed. If you destroy anger, you destroy the Buddha. Mindfully dealing with anger is like taking the hand of a little brother. We are not separate from each other. So how can you harm the other if you're not separate from it, him, her? And learning is overcoming separation. Ross teaches us over and over again in so many different facets, something between the lines like, you are unique, but at the same time, you mirror the universe. Having new eyes, beginner's eyes, 
taking up the same theme that Sean Tan is mastering so beautifully, I often grappled with it or with this concept. What does it mean having beginner's eyes in Zen? I often made the experience, for example, when moving to a new place, that my beginner's eyes were not very reliable because I couldn't see really the beauty yet. So maybe was still attached to the old place and couldn't see what was right in front of me, even though technically that were my beginner's eyes I brought. But I realized over time only with getting connected to that place, sitting patiently in one place, getting to know the habits and people and animals and its landscape can bring out its beauty. It happened to me when I moved to Sydney. I had the overall impression of the color gray first when I moved to Sydney. <laughs> and in Perth, it was initially beige. <laughs> but slowly, slowly, the places revealed themselves to me. Hugely helping was the sitting, on, the sitting in nature, the sitting uh, in the bush, the sitting with Sangha, listening to whip and bellbirds, the crickets, the frogs, the sounds of the valley, the bats squeaking at night, the birds orchestra in the morning and evening, the Karawang's night call, the black cockatoos, community garden, my dad's olive tree, the rock pools. This is how a sense of belonging felt or feels. The place slowly becomes you. So I was unlearning or um, slowly, slowly, the lostness and the disconnection. And that actually was, this moment was then having beginner's eyes. And now living in Perth, sitting here with Sangha and from country, walking the endless beaches, the sunset, the turquoise wo ocean water in the midst of summer, the endless blue skies, well, not at the moment, but usually, <laughs> The wild flower season, the intricate designs of the eucalyptus flowers. Who comes up with all these design ideas? The color combinations, the pink with the yellow, the green with the red. The certain wildness White Gum Valley has to offer. The creativeness, the random places. You can enter a hole in the wall on a dark rainy night and there is a small Japanese food place, a room full of people talking, food smells, clapping of pots and pans, warmth and laughter. So I only realized recently that this adjustment to detail in places is having beginner's eyes. I got it all wrong in the beginning. <laughs> maintaining this love for detail is maintaining beginner's eyes. Maintaining appreciation of place is meant to maintain a connection to place. So much to unlearn for my European eyes. So as last and fifth form of unlearning, I would like to bring up just a small concept, dying, <laughs> as a form of unlearning, as it is getting to letting go of body, of form. And one of the few books I took from Germany to Australia is the biography for, of Lou Andrea Salome. She was a, a writer, a poet, she also was the first female psychoanalyst. She was mentored by Freud. She was 
born in St. Petersburg. She lived in Berlin and in Göttingen, close to where I come from. <laughs> she, she was a lover of Rilke, Nietzsche adored her. <laughs> she was a very interesting woman. <laughs> she lived and died very, very um, close to where I grew up yeah. in Göttingen. And she was a very unconventional, strong woman, especially for her time. She lived between 1861 and 1937. She practiced walking meditation every morning, walking barefoot on the grass in the forest around her house in Göttingen. She died in February 1937. She di died just before the big catastrophe in our country, so I'm glad she did not uh, had to experience this all, but she, she saw it coming. In this biography, some snippets of letter correspondence with her close mentor Freud are included, and here she expressed the following, which I thought was appropriate to read to you, as the ultimate unlearning exercise, also emphasized in Zen. So she speaks about dying to Freud. So excuse my dodgy translation from German into English. I hope I can capture her words appropriately, but I would like to end with her words. So in a letter to Freud, Lou describes her excitement of getting older. She writes to Freud that she feared for a while she wouldn't reach her 60s as she struggled with some terminal illness. Maybe that explains her appreciation for life, clearly seeing aging as a gift. She writes, luckily I still got a piece of it, so age, as it is something that is so joyous. If I would need to choose between both life episodes, early versus late, I truly am unsure which one I would choose again. Because one leaves the narrow erotic experiences and an admittedly beautiful and wondrous dead end road where only two have space for each other. One leaves it for an undescribable vastness, a vastness which is also experienced in childhood but which we have forgotten about for a while because of our increasingly sharper and more conscious self-differentiation from everything. And that could only be interrupted intermittently by fabricated love bridges that were able to momentarily dissolve the self-differentiation, which we also could interpret as separation. But we lost our original identity of so many things that made our childhood so rich and full and somehow wise and thought through in all its naivety. Something of this, it seems, we can relive again with higher age because we are satisfied with the experiences collected between childhood and now. Hence, one can relive it with more conscious possession. One can let go in the renewed reliving in a much freer way, letting yourself behind yourself. When you are old, you find nests everywhere. You put your eggs in it until you get lighter and lighter, until you finally fly away.